Well, good morning. My name is Paul Ramsey, like Taylor just said. If I haven't met you, um, it's a joy uh, to be gathering with you this morning, to be opening God's word, preaching this morning. I'm a church planting resident here at Sojourn, which means that um, I'm a pastor in training, preparing, Lord willing, to uh, head out with my wife and a small crew of us who are here um, to plant a church in the Brazewood Place neighborhood, Southwest Interloop, Houston, um, about 15 minutes, 20 minutes away from here. Uh, and so we, we're, it's, it's a joy to be in this residency, to be preparing um, to plant and a joy to be preaching to you this morning. Um, at, uh, this is the third Sunday in Advent, um, the season in which we're preparing to celebrate Christ's birth on Christmas Eve. Uh, and uh, we love this time of year as Christians uh, and as a, as a culture, and I love this time of year very much. Um, not just because it's the Christmas season, um, but because every year around Advent, uh, we have, I'll say as Christians, we spend so much time throughout the year talking about the implications of Christ's death and resurrection, rightly so. We spend so much time talking about the implications of what that means for our lives. Uh, and, but every year during Advent, we open one of the gospels at Sojourn and we look at the beginning of that story. We look at Jesus himself. Uh, where he began in humble circumstances and we're forced to ask these questions about what this story has to do with our lives. Um, and for whatever, whatever reason, Advent is, a, is just a different time of year for me. Um, of course, God's word is living and active from Genesis to Revelation, beginning to end. We can't fully understand what we're reading this morning without understanding what has come before and what comes after, but there's something special, uh, I think, about the gospels in the story of Jesus' life. Truthfully, of the four gospels, Luke is, is my favorite. Um, if, if many of you have spent time in the four gospels and you find yourself gravitating towards one of the four, and Luke is my favorite. Um, it's the one that sends my imagination wandering uh, for whatever reason this morning. We're in Luke chapter one. We're in a passage that's a simple narrative. It's a dialogue between two cousins, Mary and Elizabeth, both in humble estate about the fact that the world is about to be rocked by what God is about to do. And so how does this humble story have anything to do with our lives? We ask this question every year. Um, and the truth is that this story has everything to do with our lives because all of history hangs on the truth and what happened in this story. So here's what we're gonna do this morning. We're gonna look at the two, basically the two movements of this text. There's two sections. The first is a dialogue between Mary and Elizabeth, when Mary arrives at Elizabeth's house. And then the second part is Mary's song of praise. Um, and we'll look at both of those sections. We'll, we'll make a couple points of application and then we'll be done. So if you haven't already, please open your Bibles with me to Luke chapter one. Uh, before I read though, let me give a little bit of context to help us jump into this story together. Uh, we're in the first chapter of the book of Luke, like we said, written by Luke, who was a doctor by profession who was a disciple of the Apostle Paul. Uh, and he wrote this book in the form of a letter to a man named Theophilus, most excellent Theophilus, as Luke refers to him at the beginning of chapter one. In fact, let me read verses three and four. You can flip back and look if you'd like. Verses three and four of chapter one, Luke says, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. Luke's concern in this whole book, including our passage, 
uh, is, is after having done extensive research among firsthand eyewitnesses to give an orderly account of the story of Jesus Christ to Theophilus, this ranking Roman official, so that Theophilus might have certainty concerning the things which he's heard about Jesus. Up front, therefore, he gives us his aim. Luke wants to clarify the truth about Jesus, to give the facts about Jesus so that Theophilus might know the truth among what were many, uh, what were undoubtedly many versions of the same story that were circulating. And Luke writes just as a physician would write a historical narrative. He, he writes with great detail. This is the longest, uh, most detailed account of the birth of Jesus in any of the four gospels. And beneath everything that Luke writes is almost as if you can hear his earnest appeal throughout this is the truth. This is what actually happened. You can hang your life, oh, excellent dear Theophilus, on the truth of this account. Historically speaking, when Jesus was born, God's people had endured hundreds of years of silence since their last prophetic word from God through the prophet Malachi, whose prophecy had ended with this cliffhanger, essentially saying, wait until I send the one who will prepare the way of the coming day of the Lord. The two families Luke opens his gospel with uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth and Mary with her uh, betrothed husband, Joseph, were undoubtedly steeped in the Jewish scriptures, the traditions, and they would have known in a general sense, along with the rest of Israel, that God was one day going to send the Messiah and this forerunner to the Messianic ministry. But how this would come about, they had no idea. And as we've seen so far in Luke chapter one, God has sent angels to prepare the way for two extremely significant figures. This one who would come in the spirit of Elijah, as Malachi had promised, and the Lord himself. So here in this passage, the mothers of these two figures, extraordinary figures, meet. Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, and Mary, the mother of Jesus Christ. And in this incredible meeting, we get, I think, a foretaste of the amazing things that are getting ready to take place. So to bring us right up to our text, when the angel Gabriel told Mary that she was going to bear a son, even as a, mer- even as a virgin, Mary asked this angel, how this would come about. And Gabriel said that the Holy Spirit would come upon her in a miraculous way. And to make his point that nothing is impossible with God, the angel had told Mary, behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. So according to Luke, here in verse 39 and following, Mary arises and goes with haste to the house of her cousin Elizabeth to greet her and get a look at this miracle that the angel had told her had happened had pointed to her as evidence that she too would bear a miraculous child. So let's dig in. Let me read, starting in verse 39. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Let's stop there. There's three things that I want to point out for us in this first section of text. The first thing we see, is that immediately when these two instrumental women meet, prophecy is fulfilled. Back in chapter 1, verse 15, uh, Zechariah, who's Elizabeth's husband, John's father, had been given the prophecy from the angel Gabriel concerning their son, who would be named John. The prophecy was this. The angel said, for he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink, and 
he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. So this was told back in verse 15. Here we see that John, who would come to be known as John the Baptist, right, the waymaker, as Taylor referred to him a couple of weeks ago, the waymaker for Jesus Christ, begins, John begins his ministry of making the way to Jesus Christ in utero, filled with the Holy Spirit. Even from his mother's womb, John the Baptist leaps for joy saying, it's him, it's him. Not only is this a fulfillment of the prophecy that John would be filled with the Holy Spirit even in the womb, but this pre-birth act is also a preview of the very ministry that his father was told by the angel that John would fulfill during his life. Consider the scene in the River Jordan, decades later, recorded in John chapter 1, when John the Baptist is baptizing people and announcing the nearness of the kingdom of God, and then Jesus arrives. You remember what happens? Remember what John does? He drops what he's doing and says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It's him. It's all about him. That's exactly what John is doing here, too. Even in the womb, he was created to be a signpost to Jesus, and that is what he's doing before he's born. It's him. The second thing in this, in this first chunk of text that I want to point out is this. What Elizabeth actually says is incredibly significant. Look at what she says. There's a few things that I'm not going to address, but I want to point out one thing in particular. Filled with the Holy Spirit, she blesses Mary, and then she confesses Jesus as Lord. You see that? Verse 43, why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? So Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and what does the Holy Spirit do? The chief ministry of the Holy Spirit has been said by many theologians to be pointing and glorifying the Son. God, the Holy Spirit, makes his ministry about glorifying God, the Son. And that's exactly what he does here. He points Elizabeth to the Messiah. At the prompting of a kick from this blessed child in her own womb, the Holy Spirit fills her and points her to the fruit of Mary's womb. This is the one that you've been waiting for. Why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? In fact, Elizabeth uses the word Lord twice in these verses. Here in verse 43 and again in verse 45, filled with the Holy Spirit, Elizabeth acknowledges Jesus Christ as Lord, the same Lord who spoke through Gabriel about the child in Mary's womb. In other words, Elizabeth is not just saying that this child in Mary's womb is going to be a great man who will be Lord over me, but she is saying that this child is the Lord of all creation who is taken on human form. Commentators point out that this detail makes it quite important to notice that she is filled with the Holy Spirit as she says this. We're to understand this not as an interpretation from Elizabeth that may or may not be true, but as a revelation from God through Elizabeth as she was filled with the Holy Spirit. So this wasn't, in other words, Elizabeth with a fanciful imagination considering her baby's sudden kick in her womb and jumping to the conclusion that this baby is the Lord of all creation. No, this is the Holy Spirit himself revealing with great joy to and through Elizabeth that God the Son has come to earth to dwell with us. The third thing that I want to point out here is a simple observation, but I believe it's quite significant. At this first greeting between Mary and Elizabeth, the promise to Mary from the angel Gabriel likely took on an additional layer, uh, layer of reality and meaning. So while this is... Uh, undoubtedly also true for Elizabeth, given that we've already looked at the fulfilled prophecy, 
uh, think with me for a minute about what this experience would have been like for Mary. So Mary had heard from this angel that she was gonna give birth to the son of God. And when she asked how this would happen, the angel had told her that the Holy Spirit would come upon her. And then to encourage her, the angel had said, hey, look, your cousin has also uh, conceived miraculously, she who was called barren. Uh, and, and remarkably, Mary responds to this message from the angel with faith, saying in verse 38, right before our passage, behold, I'm the servant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. She trusted God's word and departed quickly to see Elizabeth. And I can only imagine what that trip would have been like. Right, this is a four-day, likely a four-day walk uh, from Nazareth to this town in Judah uh, where Elizabeth and Zechariah live. And Mary's mind must have been racing. She knew in her head and believed in her heart, according to verse 45. She believed that what the angel Gabriel had told her would come to pass. Nevertheless, when she arrives at Elizabeth's house to find Elizabeth actually pregnant, like the angel had told her, and receive this exclamation of blessing and praise from her cousin about the fruit of her womb, while Mary isn't surprised necessarily, because she already knew this was true, it's something that no doubt hit her with a new layer of reality. Right? I remember at my wedding, I remember saying vows, and then the preacher said, I now pronounce you husband and wife. That was declared to be true, and it was true the moment he said it. We were husband and wife. And then I remember a friend of mine greeted me at the reception and said, I can't wait to give your wife a hug. And it struck me. No one had ever referred to her as my wife <laughs> before. It took on a whole new level of meaning. I wasn't surprised by it. I had kind of vaguely remembered saying the vows and hearing the pastor say those words. <laughs> right? So I wasn't surprised. Oh, I have a wife. No. But it was more real nonetheless. In fact, it still jogs my mind anytime someone tells me about my wife or asks me about my wife or I'm talking to someone about my wife. It becomes more and more real. There was probably a similar thing happening here for Mary, this moment of, oh gosh, <laughs> this is real. And then as she went through her pregnancy, it would have continued to be more and more real for her. I mean, I guess we could use pregnancy itself as a great metaphor to help understand what's going on. My wife and I, when we were pregnant with our first child, we found out we were pregnant and it was awesome. I cried, of course. And then we went and heard the baby's heartbeat. And then it became all the more real. Dum, 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 dum. Wow, we have a child coming. As one commentator put it, often a very little thing suffices to make a divine thought, which had previously only been conceived as an idea, take distinct form and life within us. I'll say it again. Often a very little thing, just a simple greeting between two cousins, often a very little thing suffices to make a divine thought, which had previously only been conceived of as an idea, take distinct form in life within us. The reality that she was carrying the son of God, the savior of the world in this moment would have become so real for this sweet, young, poor girl with this unplanned pregnancy. So that's the first section of text. Mary arrives at Elizabeth's house, receives this exuberant, likely unexpected welcome from Elizabeth who blesses Mary, the mother of her Lord. And the experience is so moving for Mary that she responds with one of the most beautiful poems in all of scripture. Let me read this next section, starting in verse 46. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. <laughs> my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. 
For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Beautiful poem. To start with, right at the beginning, right before she starts this song, this poem, there's, note the first three words, and Mary said. All right, notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say, and Mary arose and burst forth with a loud voice proclaiming. It doesn't say, and Mary shattered from the mountaintops this beautiful song. No, Luke simply records for us, and Mary said. As commentators have a field day over these three words, as one commentator put it, this introduction breathes a sentiment of deep inward repose. We get a sense from Mary here in these few words, a sense of calm humility and confidence in God. See, she's not surprised to hear Elizabeth's exclamation, but this has become much more real for her, ever more real in this moment. And yet her response is not panic. She calmly says, wow, with deep emotion, my soul magnifies the Lord. We see here that responding to God and God's grace doesn't need to be a highly emotional experience. That depth of feeling doesn't require intense outward exuberance. That's not to say it can't involve that. Right? I'm certainly not saying that Elizabeth's response was inappropriate. It was quite appropriate. But it's not required. We see here a little bit about how God wired Mary with quiet, humble estate. And in this, we see that God does not necessarily change our personality in order to line our lives up with his. He meets us where we are. You know, some of us will cry out with exuberance about just about anything. Other of us, others of us might not. Here we see that Mary was a deeply connected young woman to the promises of God, displaying a quiet, humble confidence in her God. And when we look at the words of the song, we see that it is dripping with scripture. In the interest of time, I'm not gonna go through line by line comparisons, but I will say this. Every single line in Mary's song here finds parallels in what is often several other passages of Old Testament scripture. What is clear, I believe, is not that Mary is trying to quote scripture, but as a pastor named John Piper once said, that Mary is so steeped in scripture that when she breaks out in praise, the words that come naturally to her lips are the words of scripture. Mary is so well nourished by the word of God, the bread of life as Jesus will come to call it during his lifetime, that when she is rejoicing in God, what can she do but repeat back the glorious words that God has given her? And let's look at what she says. There are three main parts to this song of praise. The Magnificat, as it's often been called, uh, which is the, the Latin for the first word, my soul magnifies. Um, Magnificat's well-known throughout church history. A lot of songs have been composed. But the first part of this song of praise, verses 46 through 47, we, in, in this first part, we see the state of Mary's heart. Total joy and praise. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. We get the image of the totality of worship from every aspect of Mary's being. 
directed at the Lord, her God, and her Savior. Not just lip service while she is certainly saying this out loud, but this is from the very depths of her being. This is defining for who she is right now. In this moment, she is enraptured with soul-centered, God-centered worship. And why is she magnifying the Lord? In the second part, verses 48 through 49, she gives name to what God has done for her. God has looked on Mary's humble estate and he who is mighty has done great things for her. This is where we get into the meat of what I want to talk about for the next few minutes. Because what Mary sees here is at the very heart of God's character and plan and it cuts to the very heart of our culture. Let me read verse 48 again. Mary had said, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. I wanna pause here because it bears pausing to consider what Mary actually means by this. This is true humility. And our culture has a problem with humility. Because of that, we probably have a hard time relating to the idea of having a humble estate. Most of us think of this purely in terms of money. Even Christians are quick to point out the poverty of biblical characters like Mary and leave it unintentionally often simply in financial terms. But this is far deeper than that. This isn't simply a statement of material poverty, while it certainly includes that. It's not even merely a statement of being a low-class person either, while it certainly includes that. And this is Mary saying, I am nothing. I am worth nothing. I am a lowly servant, not even worth mentioning in the list of names of God's servants. And yet, God has chosen to look on me. Nothing in me merited God noticing me. And yet, he looked at me. And he's done great things for me. Let me put it this way. Mary's rejoicing in this event of being chosen isn't her saying, finally, my time has come. Right? Often, you and I have been trained to look at people in lowly circumstances and say, just wait, one day your time is going to come and things are gonna be great because you were created for awesomeness. <laughs> great things are coming for you. Good things come to those who wait. Let me say that that is not what Mary had in mind as she spoke these words. This is Mary saying, I am lowly. I wasn't sitting here waiting for the great things to come for me because I am simply a lowly servant. Who am I to be worthy of any of this? And yet God saw fit to do these great things. This is what Jesus talked about when he talked about being poor in spirit. Material wealth is the metaphor that Jesus uses to describe not material wealth alone, but the status of the soul totally at the mercy of God totally in need of God's providence, both the understanding and the lived reality that without him, I am nothing. But we have a hard time with this in our culture. We have grown so ingrained with the idea that we are awesome that even when we show ourselves to be abject failures, we paint those moments as clarifying moments and showing us that there's something else that we would better be doing. Failure is the next step on your road to success. I think it was, it might've been over a year ago in a sermon that I preached here Um, that I mentioned a talk that I listened to by a man named David Brooks, who's a New York Times columnist and commentator. Uh, He was lamenting the loss of humility in America. And in that talk, he shared some some pretty ear-catching stats, statistics, about how Americans think of ourselves. And I won't share all the things that I shared last time, but I'll give you just a couple of the numbers that he pointed out. 
In 1950, Gallup asked high school seniors, do you think you're a very important person? In 1950, 12% of high school students thought that they were very important people. In 2005, it was 80%. With respect to math scores, the United States is now 36th in the world when it comes to math, and we are number one in the world at thinking that we're awesome at math. <laughs> right? South Korea is, is last place in the world for thinking that they're great at math, and they're actually number one in math. 96% of college professors believe they have above average teaching skills. 96% of teachers are above average. Time Magazine survey asked people um, if they thought that they were in the top 1% of earners, and it turns out 19% of America thinks that they're in the top 1% of earners. Here in the U.S., we think that we are awesome, which is the opposite of the humble estate that Mary refers to. And yet it is the air that we breathe the food that we eat, the water that we drink. The reason I'm zooming in so closely on this is because of what Mary says in the third section of this song. In this third section, verses 50 through 55, Mary roots what God has done for her in the truth about God's character and how God works in the world. And look with me, it's essentially a series of contrasts. On the one hand, you have God's gracious providence for the humble. Verse 50, God's mercy is for those who fear him. Verse 52, he has exalted those of humble estate. Verse 53, he has filled the hungry with good things. Verse 54, he has helped his servant, Israel. And on the other hand, you have God's judgment for the proud. Verse 51, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Verse 52, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones. Verse 53, the rich he has sent away empty. I wanna make a couple of observations here. First, like I said before, Mary's song makes it clear that she is steeped in scripture and a recurring theme throughout the scriptures is that God loves a humble heart and opposes the proud. Proverbs alone is full of statements that herald the wisdom that comes with humility and warn against the folly and danger of pride. Just a few examples from Proverbs. Proverbs 11 verse two, when pride comes, disgrace follows, but with humility comes wisdom. Proverbs 29, 23, a man's pride will bring him low, but a humble spirit will obtain honor. Proverbs 15, 33, the fear of the Lord is the instruction of wisdom and humility comes before honor. Proverbs 18, verse 12, lastly, before his downfall, a man's heart is proud, but humility comes before honor. And let me pause on that one for just a moment. Before his downfall, a man's heart is proud, but humility comes before honor. Does that sound familiar? Verse 51 from our passage, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Often the way that God judges people is to hand them over to the desires of their hearts. In other words, the means God uses of carrying out his judgment on the proud is not to actually extend his hand and judge them, but to simply give them the desires of their hearts themselves. Their own desires are their own undoing. Their proud, vain desires lead them astray and are themselves a real form of judgment. It calls to mind the illustration of a married man who has an affair following the desire of his heart and the prideful entitlement that leads him to forsake his wife for the sake of getting what he wants, only to see his life begin to come apart at the seams. 
or if not an affair, then it could be the man who, following the desire of his heart for more acclaim or more wealth, throws himself into his work, neglecting his family and watching as his wife and kids grow more and more resentful, leading to splintered, conflict-ridden relationships with those who should be most dear to him. I gave the man in the example, but the woman, a woman could do those two things as well. The question I would ask you is this. Where have the desires of your heart gotten you in your life? Have they led to unity between you and others? Unity and love between you and your spouse, you and others in the world, or have they led to conflict, division, loneliness, anxiety, fear, scattering, as this passage calls it? The truth is that beneath the surface, brothers and sisters and friends, each of us has a humility problem. Not one of us is humble in the depths of our being. We can be well-practiced at looking humble and living humbly. We can even be philosophically convinced that humble living is truly beneficial for us, at least in the long run, even if it means short-term loss. But even when our pride doesn't look like the full-of-himself jerk at work, it can be hidden down deep where even we are not aware of the depths of it. There's this story in the New Testament of during Jesus' ministry of this rich young ruler who comes up to Jesus and really thinks of himself as humble. He comes up to Jesus and says, you know, we, we, we kind of paint him as the, the prideful, rich ruler, but he comes up to Jesus and says, Jesus, I've tried to follow your law. I've tried to live my life entirely in submission to you, thinking that he really has fulfilled the law. And then Jesus says, okay, one thing left to do, go sell all you have and give it to the poor. And in that moment, Jesus put his finger on that spot that that guy was totally blind to that one point of pride that this rich young ruler knew, I'm not ready to give this up. This is mine. And he walks away sorrowful. He went away hungry, as our passage would call it. There's perhaps more to note here in Luke's writing of these details. He's scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones. The rich he has sent away empty. Remember Theophilus, who Luke is writing this letter to. Theophilus was a ranking Roman official who no doubt had wealth, power, and likely pride as a result of those things. As Luke writes in this account, then he undoubtedly has a mind for warning Theophilus as well, both warning and a note here of salvation. Humble yourself, Theophilus. Live in submission to God. This is where God is to be found in the low place. Beware your wealth and your position of power, O Theophilus for they can be a snare to you, keeping you from God. And so the question there is, what is that snare for you? What is that thing that is threatening to keep you from finding God in the humble place or effectively doing so? Is it your unmet desires for the relationship you've been waiting for, the community that you need, the job that you deserve? Is it your excellence at work that keeps bringing you success, success after success? Is it your success as a parent, the money you have in the bank, the high opinions that others have of you? Or is it your lack of those things and the lingering bitterness of knowing that you should deserve more? We all have a humility problem and it is as deep as the thoughts of our hearts, the deepest seat of our thoughts and desires. And the question is, how do we, how do we do this? How do we humble ourselves in the way that we read about in this text and elsewhere in the Bible? The book of James says in chapter four, verse 10, very simply, 
Humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. Mary here indicates for us that God has looked upon her humble estate because it's those who fear God, the humble and hungry who are exalted and who are fed. So how do we do it? How do we humble ourselves? The truth is, we can't. On our own, we are utterly unable to present God with the humble heart that he desires. In part because we are unable to see God for who he truly is in a way that right-sizes us because we are always and ever only looking through the veil of our sin and our prideful desire. The only way we are able to see God for who he truly is is if God breaks in and reveals himself truly to us. And in this first chapter of Luke, we get to think a window into how this takes place. Let's look. Mary is told, if you remember, Mary is told by the angel Gabriel that she will conceive and bear a son. And when she asks how it will come, come about, what is she told? Back in verse 35, Gabriel had told her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. So Mary takes him at his word. And then at some point between that interaction, her arrival at Elizabeth's house here, the Holy Spirit has a come upon Mary to conceive the son of God. And it is Mary who is now filled with the Holy Spirit who walks in this humble confidence, singing this glorious hymn about the character and goodness of God to the humble. One of the things that Elizabeth commends in Mary, verse 45, is Mary's faith, that Mary believed what God had promised her. And how is it that Mary believed in this, the promise of God? This faith is a gift And this gift is given by God himself through the Holy Spirit. This faith doesn't come from merely knowing the promises of God. There's many who know the promises of God. It comes from knowing God himself. And we see here Mary knew scripture, but it was God through the power of the Holy Spirit who came in to Mary to tie up these scriptures into this beautiful song informing Mary's joy to the fullest. And think about Elizabeth What happens to Elizabeth that she confesses so boldly and so humbly that Christ is Lord? Verse 41 tells us that that exchange is prompted by Elizabeth being filled with the Holy Spirit. Notice how I characterized Elizabeth's greeting as humble. Consider this for just a moment. Do you notice the absolute lack of rivalry between Elizabeth and Mary in this story? It truly is astounding when I think about the the human relationships that I am in the midst of in my own heart. Elizabeth had just received an extraordinary miracle of God and is carrying this child of blessing from the Lord and here comes the one-upper, right? Right? This small town, Elizabeth had been barren, this glorious miracle of God and then here comes Mary, not the son of blessing only, but the son of God himself. And, And Elizabeth doesn't make some sly remark. She doesn't say, couldn't you have been glorified in Nazareth and left Judah to me? You know, she doesn't say anything like that. We see Holy Spirit-filled joy between these two women in a way that's miraculous. It is truly remarkable. We are unable, brothers and sisters and friends, unable left to ourselves to humble ourselves before God, presenting the humble heart that God is pleased to fill with good things, that is pleased to rejoice in good for good's sake alone. By God's grace, though, he condescends not just to speak to us, not just to speak to us, but to enter into our hearts with his power, calling us to himself through the power of the Holy Spirit. 
finally, while there's a lot in this passage that we've left on the table, I want us to notice one more thing. In the way that she speaks, it's as if Mary understands the ministry of her unborn son as being as good as done. Look with me. She Look at the words she uses. She says, he has shown strength, speaking of God. God has shown strength. God has scattered. God has brought down. This can be thought of as the prophetic perfect sense. Mary uh, is describing the future work of her son, of God's son, with the certainty of something that has already been accomplished. Even when Jesus had yet to be born, Mary considered the reality of his return as already done. Her life was characterized by the joy of his finished work even before she saw it with her own eyes. You see, the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives is not just to cut through our pride and make us humble before God and then leave us to live humble lives for no other purpose than to be humble. No, the Holy Spirit cuts us to the heart to humble us before God that we might no longer live for ourselves, but for the sake of him who died and for our sake was raised. You see, the reason our pride is so offensive to God is that it runs against the very purpose for which God created us. God created us for his glory to be his image bearers in the world, a unified people to whom God would reveal his glory and through whom he would reveal his glory to the world. When mankind fell into sin, the chief outcome of that was that humanity was characterized by the sin of self-centered living, living on our own mission rather than God's mission. And so God's plan for all of time was to redeem us from this self-centered pursuit that leaves us nowhere except scattered and alone. In sending his son to earth, this narrative of God's plan to redeem mankind was reaching its climax. This is the way that God was going to reveal, redeem his people. Looking ahead to the resurrection, N.T. Wright referred to the resurrection of Jesus Christ as the day the revolution began. God's intention is to revolutionize the world. So the Holy Spirit's work in our lives is not simply to leave us to live humble lives, quiet lives on our own for no purpose, but to take the ordinary moments in our lives, the humble acts of submission to God and to one another and to our neighbor, and turn that into a revolution that would turn the hearts of sons to their fathers, the hearts of mankind back to their father in heaven. That's my time. Let me leave you with this. In this passage that so highlights quiet humility, remember this. We have in our hearts a desire to take on the world that most often manifests itself as pride. But this desire is not necessarily misinformed. It is merely misplaced. We were created for a revolution that would take over the world. We can't do it on our own. We don't even deserve to be on the winning team, but it is in that place of realization, friends, in that low place of realization that we have no right to be on this winning team, that we have nothing to offer God, that God meets us in that low place, enters us by his spirit, and turns our lives around so that he could turn one action at a time around for his glory for the good of the world. Brothers and sisters, let's pray that God might make us humble and be glorified through our ministry. God, we love you. And we're so thankful for your word and for sending your son 
We're so thankful, Lord, that you have brought us together into this place this morning to gather around your word. And Lord, we're thankful that as Mary looked forward, knowing that the, the, the work of your ministry, Lord Jesus, was as good as done even before you'd done anything. Um, Lord, we're thankful that you have welcomed us into fulfilling the ministry that you called Christ to. That we are Christ's hands and feet in the world and that your plan is moving forward. Darkness is being pushed back through the humble submission of your servants. And Lord, this is so counter to everything that our flesh is telling us. Holy Spirit, enter our hearts. Enter this place. Bind us together as one with you and with one another. So that with this example of quiet humility that we see in Mary, that we see ultimately exemplified in you, Lord Jesus, would we follow that example and watch as you turn our ordinary lives into extraordinary lives of glory for your namesake. We love you, Lord. In Christ's name, amen.